0: Stanford University. stirring introduction from the Decembrists Infanta. This is, once again, the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences regular podcast. This is issue number three, recorded in October 2012. I'm Hank Greeley, the director of the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences. With me today is CLB fellow Jake Shirko. Our other fellow, Matt Lamkin, is off interviewing for jobs. Matt, good luck. It really is annoying. You get these fellows trained, and then they want to go off and be professors themselves just when they become useful. Anyway, uh, we have several things to talk about today, starting with mouse eggs. Don't try them fried, and they're not green, but there was what I think is a potentially really important story about mouse eggs. A Japanese lab headed by Dr. Seto in Kyoto managed to take mouse embryonic stem cells, as well as mouse-induced pluripotent stem cells, use them, transform them, differentiate them into becoming mouse eggs, and use those eggs through mouse IVF to make little mice. SATA's lab last year had done the same thing with mouse sperm, making mice out of sperm that was derived from both mouse embryonic stem cells and mouse-induced pluripotent stem cells. Now that they've done it with eggs, uh, we're waiting for the next experiment with bated breath for when they combine stem cell-derived eggs and stem cell-derived sperm. But even just doing it with one gamete to make new mice, I think is potentially revolutionary, though not frankly with respect to mice. We don't really need to provide additional reproductive options for mice. If we could do this with people, if we could take induced pluripotent cells and make them into gametes, it could change our species and our world. Induced pluripotent cells, remember, are cells that are made from other existing adult cells. So, human embryonic stem cells, you have to start with a human embryo, which you destroy, take the inner cell mass, and turn those into embryonic stem cells which are pluripotent, which we think can be turned into just about any cell type, because it did to make us, and then try to differentiate them into those other cell types. Induced pluripotent stem cells are a little bit different. We take cells from a person, typically skin cells, so it doesn't have to be skin cells, and using a cocktail of either genes or proteins, turn them into pluripotent cells that act like embryonic stem cells then once they are de-differentiated back to this relatively primitive state, so-called, re-differentiate them out to become adult final cell types. The nice thing about induced pluripotent stem cells compared to human embryonic stem cells is they have the person's genome. So that if we're trying, say, to replace beta pancreatic cells in somebody with type 1 diabetes, if we use human embryonic stem cells, their immune system will recognize those cells as foreign and try to fight against them. If we use induced pluripotent stem cells made from their own skin cells, their immune system presumably will recognize them as self, and there won't be any immune rejection problems. Now, in the gamete context, in the context of eggs and sperm, the immune issue isn't such a big deal. The big deal is that egg or that sperm will have the genetic variations of the person whose skin cell was used to make the induced pluripotent cell, as opposed to the genes of the embryo that was destroyed to make the embryonic stem cell. So if you want to have children of your own, and let's put of your own in scare quotes there, I've always felt that's an unfair term, adoptive parents, their children are their own children in important ways. But if you want to have genetic children, children who share your genes, embryonic stem cells won't help you. Induced pluripotent stem cells will. So here's how I think it's going to be important. First, for people who can't have children because they don't have eggs and sperm. Sometimes this will be as a result of a birth defect. Sometimes it will be as a result of disease, like testicular or ovarian cancer, or other cancers where the cancer treatment has wiped out the eggs and sperm or, and guys who may not want to listen to this, people who have been victims of terrible accidents who as a result no longer make sperm. There are millions of such people in the United States. Some of them desperately want to have children quote of their own, close quote, and they can't do it. The best they can do is to get eggs or sperm from a sibling who will share 50% of their genetic variations, but not all of them. All right, so now if this mouse work carries over in a safe and effective way to humans, which is a big F. We could take a skin cell from an infertile person who's infertile because no eggs or sperm, turn it into an induced pluripotent stem cell, differentiate that back into an egg or a sperm, and let him or her be a genetic parent. I think that's potentially a big deal and a very attractive one. Who wants to say no to people who just want to have kids of their own, but as a result of cancer or an accident or some other cause that is not their fault, aren't able to. But having started with infertile parents, it could move then to other places. So for example, if this technology worked, it could take away the biological time clock on women. Their own eggs age, because all those eggs were created actually before they were born, And by somewhere between 35 and 45, women typically run out of usable eggs. But if you could make eggs from a skin cell, postmenopausal women could make their own eggs and have their own babies. Oddly enough, it works in the other direction too. Children before puberty, I can't imagine why you would want to, but you could make eggs or sperm from children who have not yet reached puberty. So
1: Hank, two things come to mind. The first is whether you think there's going to be an effect on the egg donation procedures here in the U.S. As you know, egg donation is risky, and in some cases it's very valuable. I was reading a, a uh, ad in the Stanford Daily a couple weeks ago that was willing to give someone $25,000 to donate their egg to an otherwise infertile
0: couple. So first... The language there has always kind of puzzled me. When I donate something, people don't give me $25,000. The way we use the verb is sort of odd in that context. But yeah, I think it will wipe out the egg donation business and the sperm donation business. Wipe out or almost wipe out.
1: The second thing I was thinking about is considering that you could make these eggs and sperm from kind of any somatic cell. Is it possible that someone could become a surreptitious parent? That is, someone could take a cell that you leave behind just in your course of daily
0: activity and turn it into an egg or sperm? That's a frightening thought, but I think it is at least potentially possible. They'd have to be able to get a cell sample with some viable cells, but that might be as little as a used styrofoam coffee cup, and then find a lab that was willing to turn it into iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, But if this comes true, celebrities may well want to have vaporized all of their used Kleenexes. So I guess no more selling already chewed gum on eBay. It might be a problem, yeah. So after we move through infertile people, uh, I think this technology, again, if it works, would be then used by people who want to go through IVF for the regular purposes. They've got reproductive problems. Conceiving babies the old-fashioned way doesn't work for them, so instead they use IVF. The big problem with IVF now, and its cost, its unpleasantness, its discomfort, and its risk, is egg harvest. As far as I know, no one has ever been hospitalized for sperm donation, but egg donation sends about 1% of the women who undergo egg harvest to the hospital every year. So if instead of going through 30 days of shots and invasive procedures just need a little skin biopsy to make iPSCs. I think that becomes attractive. And building on that, the final step, I think, in 20 to 40 years is using these eggs created by induced pluripotent stem cells to make a bunch of embryos and then use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis on the third day after conception to look at the genes in each of those embryos and give the parents the choice of which to implant. Now, this is a big speculative edifice that I've grown on a few mice. Uh, It may not work. I think it is likely to. I think this is such a big deal. I'm writing a book about it with the, I suppose titillating isn't the right term, but the title, The End of Sex, should be out from Harvard University Press next year. Uh, Much of the book, though, of course, is taken up by what would be the consequences if parents could, looking at the whole genome sequence of 50 embryos, pick the ones they wanted to try to make into babies, the ones who could become the next Andrew Luck or the next Gabby Douglas. Uh, I think there are huge potential social, ethical, political, moral, economic consequences, but none of them will come true unless this can be done. And Dr. Saito's lab's, ability to make mice from mouse eggs that were made from induced pluripotent stem cells is one big step toward making this a reality.
1: So speaking of stem cells, I see that they've been in the news a lot lately, Hank.
0: Uh, yeah, the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology this year was awarded to two stem cell pioneers, Dr. John Gurdon for work he did with frogs about 50 years ago, and Dr. Shinya Yamanaka for the really important work he did just in the last five years. This is a really quick turnaround for a Nobel Prize in creating first mouse-induced pluripotent stem cells and then human-induced pluripotent stem cells. The interesting thing is, based on their own rules, which are not in Mr. Nobel's will, the Nobel Prize Committee limits itself to no more than three people per prize. And on this one, they only use two. And there's a some of us have a question about who was left out. That would be... Jamie Thompson at the University of Wisconsin. Right, Uh, Dr. Thompson is the person who first was able successfully to make human embryonic stem cells back in 1998. Interestingly, there has been a Nobel Prize for embryonic stem cells but only for mouse embryonic stem cells. Mouse embryonic stem cells were first successfully isolated back in the early 80s. It took over 15 years before anyone, in this case Dr. Thompson, was able to figure out how to do the same trick with humans that's pretty important. I mean, mice are important, but humans are a lot more important, at least to us humans. And frankly, I wonder why Dr. Thompson was left off the Nobel Prize list. It would have made more sense earlier for the embryonic stem cells, but there's no strong germaneness requirement with Nobel Prizes. If they're giving a prize for stem cells, they could have included Thompson on human embryonic stem cells, as well as Gurdon on frog cells and Yamanaka on human and mouse induced pluripotent cells.
1: I'm surprised and I'm not at the same time. It seems like the work by doctors Gurdon and Yamanaka deal with whether or not potency is reversible. That is whether you could take something that is not a stem cell and turn it back into a stem cell. Jamie Thompson's work seems to be more specifically in the technical application to human cells. And while you were saying, Hank, that's still pretty important stuff, I wonder whether the Nobel Prize Committee was picking it solely
0: based on that distinction alone. I mean, that's possible, Jake. Um, I've been a lawyer longer than you have, and maybe that's made me more skeptical is the kind word. Cynical is perhaps the more realistic word. I smell politics here. And I I think that you're probably right. I mean, heaven knows that the Nobel Committee's have never been known to play politics, especially with the Peace Prize. Uh, But I think that the moral and political concerns about human embryonic stem cells and the destruction of human embryos have probably kept Dr. Thompson from what really deserves a Nobel Prize. Even if the human embryonic stem cells don't prove to be a source of cures, It is the human embryonic stem cells that led Dr. Yamanaka to make the induced pluripotent stem cells. They're the things that opened up the whole possibilities for regenerative medicine. They may not be the things that get us over the finish line in terms of being what we actually use, or they may be. It's too early to tell yet, but I think Dr. Thompson got jobbed. I think that you're probably right. One interesting thing to
1: note is that Dr. Thompson was a collaborator with Dr. Yamanaka on a number of Dr. Yamanaka's papers concerning human stem cells. So again, this does seem to be more
0: politics than any particular distinction as to what was merit-worthy. Which, of course, is one of the reasons that it's so fun to be in the Center for Law and Biosciences. Biosciences have politics, too. And law. Speaking of law, I think we are going to see legal intervention in an area of the biosciences before very long because of this really appalling tragedy of fungal meningitis being passed by steroid injections. Jake, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: so it's been in the news a lot lately. There was a compounding pharmacy called New England Compounding Center. They were compounding steroid injections, which are a popular treatment for back pain. But as it turns out, the steroid injections were contaminated with a fungus that causes meningitis. When we first wrote about this on our blog, 12 people had died and the infections had spread to individuals in 10 states. Now it seems that 19 people are dead and the contaminated drugs have been passed to 16 states. And it seems like the list is getting longer. There's been a lot of talk about how can this happen, and there's really kind of two sides to it. The first is a scientific side, how can this happen? There seems to be a quality control problem at New England Compounding Center. I suppose that goes without saying. Hmm. One thing that people have written about, and I don't know whether this is true or whether this is related to the contamination with the fungus, was that New England Compounding Center was either next door or in the same building as a garbage treatment plant.
0: I I don't know whether that'll turn out to be important. Fungi are everywhere. That's true.
1: Whether or not it's the particular fungus that causes meningitis is another question, though. But there's also a legal question about how can this happen, or who was responsible. There's a particular fascinating history behind it. Uh, Until 2002, the Food and Drug Administration kind of co-regulated compounding pharmacies with states. The regulations specified that compounding pharmacies needed to adhere to very particular marketing practices in terms of who they directed their advertisements to, what they said, what they promised, and what they were allowed to compound. The Supreme Court actually took up this case on, of all things, free speech grounds in 2002 and struck those regulations down. The way that they were written, the court had to strike down the entire statute, which unfortunately also included some of the quality control concerns that the Food and Drug Administration was worried about. That left states, and only states, with the ability to regulate compounding pharmacies.
0: Uh, Commercial free speech doctrine, the gift that just keeps on giving.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. As it turns out, in Massachusetts, it's the Board of Registration of Pharmaceutical Licenses that is supposed to regulate compounding pharmacies. Unfortunately, it seems, at least in my initial investigation of the subject, that they don't have any real inspection power to go in and examine to see whether these compounding pharmacies are up to date on their quality control issues. They inspect compounding pharmacies when they apply for a license. It appears that they inspect compounding pharmacies when there's a complaint, but in the meantime, it doesn't look like the law mandates that they go in and look at what these compounding pharmacies are doing from their day-to-day practices. Now, mind you, in this case, the complaint is pretty big. I took a drug from a compounding pharmacy and I died. So we wonder whether or not Massachusetts state is going to create additional regulations for compounding pharmacies in the future.
0: What I think is so interesting about this, Jake, is the compounding pharmacies themselves, they are a a relic of an earlier age. They're a a leftover, it seems to me, of the days when your pharmacist actually compounded, made, put together the drugs that you used. He'd grind up a little of this, grind up a little of that, put it in a little alcohol, add a little sweetener, and sell it to you as a tonic. That's 19th century stuff. Compounding pharmacies were largely rendered obsolete by the growth of the modern drug industry. But compounding pharmacies hung on on the excuse that there were occasionally patients who needed something special. They needed a smaller dose, or they needed a dose that was made with something something different from from the standard. The justification for the continuing use of compounding pharmacies is occasional unusual people with small lots, but these guys sold 15,000 of these prepackaged steroid injections it sounds like it's not really the business that compounding pharmacies are supposed to be in
1: yeah i think you're right i think what we're facing is kind of a dual problem in the regulation sphere it seems like the law hasn't caught up with real world practice and for that matter it seems like real world practice hasn't caught up with real world practice okay. that is real world practice of the 21st century hasn't caught up with real world practice of the 19th
0: yeah I mean, I think the FDA might have been more aggressive in going after New England as a uh, manufacturer. They regulate manufacturers versus compounding pharmacies. But I am somewhat sympathetic with the FDA because every time they try to take something on, they have a well-funded, vested interest fighting back against them. The FDA has to make choices about where to spend its resources. I think we'll see it spending more resources on compounding pharmacies in the future than it has in the near past.
1: Right. Right. And even though the Supreme Court struck down the statute that allowed the FDA to regulate compounding pharmacies, I haven't seen anything about whether the FDA, after that case, aggressively pursued rulemaking authority to bring those regulations back within its sphere. Maybe that's something they'll do in the future. Maybe not. Maybe Congress will actually reauthorize the remainder of the statute that the Supreme Court didn't find unconstitutional. But given the political climate these days, I wouldn't. Hold my breath.
0: I don't know, Jake. I teach an FDA law class, and a consistent theme through the history of this really fascinating agency is that it gets more power after disasters. (music) Jake, I'm glad you mentioned we've got a blog post up on the CLB blog about the compounding pharmacies. We also have a blog post up, both of them from you on the Nobel Prize issue, I encourage all of our listeners to take a look at the Center for Law and Bioscience's blog and comment on it. Uh, We seem to be getting about 100 spam comments for every real comment, but we're diligent about taking the spam comments out. So your real comments in continuing this conversation will shine out. One of the new things we're doing on the blog is a little odd. I'm not sure that it makes sense, but it seemed like fun. We've just launched a series on law, biosciences, and bioscience fiction. It turns out that this year, a surprising number of the people associated with the Center for Law and the Biosciences are science fiction fans, including me. So we got to talking about science fiction and biosciences. And uh, we'll be posting occasional blog posts about science fiction stories, films, even computer games, that raise some bio-issues. The first post is up now. It involves a 1947 Robert Heinlein short story called Jerry Was a Man. I wrote it, so I encourage you to take a look at it. So Jake, how are you going to vote on Prop 37 on labeling GMO food? I think I'm going to vote no, personally. I think that the idea is probably
1: a good one, perhaps sometime in the future. But the current yes on 37 campaign is really just alarmist and fearful. I wish that there was more true scientific discourse about exactly what this proposition is going to do and what it's going to mean for consumers. But until that time, this is something I can't support.
0: So it's funny, Um, I intend to vote no as well, but it's the no on 37 ad campaign that actually tempts me to vote yes. Speaking of hyperbole, the idea that it will cost every family hundreds more dollars in costs, I think frankly if it does pass, it will be sort of like Prop 65, the California proposition from several decades ago that's responsible for those signs everywhere you go that says the state of California has determined that there are cancer-causing chemicals in this restaurant, bar, parking garage, or other place and be widely ignored. It'll be interesting to see how Californians vote on this one. It'll also be interesting to see if it does pass what the lawsuits look like in its wake, whether they're interstate commerce or federal preemption claims made. Uh, I think if it passes, it'll be a long time before we know what actually is going to come out of it. And meanwhile, consumers
1: who are worried about this rightly or wrongly can ensure that they're not receiving, quote, genetically modified food by buying things that are labeled FDA organic.
0: Except, of course, that everything we eat has been genetically modified by the diligent efforts of our ancestral hunters and farmers. Wheat is a hybrid made of three completely different species that our brilliant ancestral geneticist farmers created. So, in some sense, everything we eat is genetically modified. That is absolutely
1: true. And if you've gone to the Half Moon Bay Pumpkin Festival with the pumpkin you could drive a car through, don't think that came about through nature alone.
0: Speaking of science fiction, and moving a little bit off topic, about four light years off topic, one recent news story really caught my eye. Earth-sized planet found around Beta Centauri. Alpha, Beta, and Proxima Centauri are the three closest stars to Earth, apart from the Sun, of course. They're about four light years away. Alpha and Beta Centauri are a double star system. It's still not entirely clear, I think, whether Proxima Proxima Centauri is part of that star system or whether it's just a nearby star. Uh, But scientists have found a roughly Earth-sized planet circling Beta Centauri, our closest neighbor in the galaxy. Now, this planet, though Earth-sized, is not very Earth-like. Instead of circling its Sun in 365 days, it does it in three days. The consequence of that is it's really close to its sun, and the consequence of that is its surface temperature is estimated at about 1300 degrees Fahrenheit. So probably not the home of verdant jungles and other sites for great science fiction movies. But if there's one planet around Beta Centauri, it seems to increase the odds that there are more planets around Beta Centauri. And four light years though a long, long way, something over 25 trillion miles, is short enough that people have actually speculated on how we might be able to send probes to the Centauri system. I think this news makes it more likely that astrobiology or exobiology will someday help drive at least an unmanned probe out of our solar system to our nearest galactic neighbors. So I think this creates a greater likelihood that the interstellar flight part of science fiction may actually have some reality in the next 50 to 100 years. Well, it may seem like this podcast has gone on for 50 to 100 years. It's certainly gone on long enough, so we're going to wrap it up. Take a look at our website for the Center for Law and Biosciences, at our blog site, follow us on Twitter. We have our regular bi-weekly journal clubs coming up and will be announced. Join our, get on our mailing list and find out about our events. We're trying in every way we can to get out interesting information about the ever-fascinating intersections of law and the biosciences. Uh, until next time, I leave you with the receding strains of the Decemberists' June hymn.